uh, the, it was probably the first listen where they, they were doubling the, the vocal with the guitar. And I thought, I hope they don't do this on all the songs. Like, I hope this isn't their thing. <laughs> so it'll really wear me down. <laughs> Hello and welcome everyone to yet another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast where old friends, lifelong musicians, and lifelong critics randomly select an album from the list of the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So each episode we dig into a new album, we discuss it, we analyze it, we throw some praise, we throw some scorn, and ultimately give you our jackass opinions. At the end of the episode, we're all going to vote on whether or not it deserves to be on the list or whether we can throw it into the trash heap of history, along with some other metal bands in this instance, like Winger, Metal Church, Europe, and Last Cup of Pain. I made up that last one, by the way. Last Cup of Pain is not a real... I, I was really wondering where it so began. Wow. Winger's <laughs> real. So I'm honestly excited and a little worried about this episode because I know that metalheads are like legit into it and we'll, we'll probably get shredded just like a guitar solo in this episode. Right at the start, let's remind everybody as well, if this is the first time listening, we've got an email address. As you're listening along, you can send us your thoughts. It's 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Now, speaking of metal... Today, we're going to be reviewing Iron Maiden's debut album, titled Iron Maiden, released in 1980. According to the Iron Maiden documentary, this album remains the favorite of many of the Iron Maiden fans. Now, before we get any further, my name is Adam. (laughs) In the studio with me is a group of great musicians, great friends. We'll kick it around the room. I'm Phil. Tell us a little about yourself, Phil. Well, uh, I'm Phil. I've known Adam since uh, the first grade. Um, Jesus. And. That's and, good. Uh, yes, yeah, we've, we've heard enough. Right. <laughs> this is Rob here. This is an album that came out uh, the year that I was born. So I'm always excited to listen to these 1980 albums. Get a little taste of what was going on when I entered the world. Tommy? Hey, I'm Tom. Uh, This album made me realize that I think I like the concept of metal more than I like the execution of metal very often. Mm, Uh, Good. Very, very interesting initial take, but I, I totally, totally dig it. So just for some context about just how big Iron Maiden was and continues to be. Since 1980 through 2021, according to MD Daily Record, which is a website that aggregates a bunch of different stats, they've sold 200 million albums, compilation, VHS concerts in total over the course of that time period. You have got to be kidding me. Swear to God. They just released a record in 2021. They're still going strong. Yeah, well, okay. strong might be a, might be a stretch, but forty-one albums, which uh, seventeen studio albums, thirteen live albums, four EPs, and seven compilations. 
They've also released 47 singles and 20 video albums. I looked at the track list on that recent double live album that they put out. Like 80% of the songs were written before 1985. (laughs) Still out there. So if anything, they're great marketers and they're a great business. I mean, it's really, really remarkable. That's what what I was going to say. Yeah, people like to mock sometimes bands that just happen to also be really good at marketing. But this is a band that knew what they were trying to do, had a very clear design aesthetic, and leveraged it to sell a lot of merch. And I have to give it up to them just on that level. I think that is interesting. Like, you know, Kiss is another example. I don't care for Kiss as a band too much. But they clearly invented an image, and they knew what they were doing on a business level. Dude, think about the t-shirt money that Iron Maiden has made. The t-shirt money alone has got to be, like, more than most, like, popular artists will ever make in their careers. I thought yeah, you were going to say small countries. <laughs> <laughs> Let's come back to that Eddie the Head on the T-shirt. We'll come back to that a, a little later. But I know uh, Eddie the in, Head. In pro- what is it? What is this Eddie the Head? Eddie the Head is is the is the character that appears on all the albums. He's like oh, so it's the same guy on every album. It's the cover. it's the mascot, and there's a reason why they may have wanted to stick with a uh, a more coherent and unchanging facet of the band because. Unlike ZZ Top, who we talked about in a prior episode, who had the same three band members for 40 years or something like that. More like 50, I think, but yeah. Yeah. So in the research here, I only really looked at the band up through the first one or two albums. The inception of the band was in 75, 76. Between 76 and their debut release in 1980, there were 18 different (laughs) band members. Yeah. In fact, there's a Gantt chart on uh, Wikipedia that shows <laughs> how they hired and fired. And uh, I mean, it's between 76 and 80. Yeah. yeah. How this, much were they? This is before tell, tell their first more. record. Yeah, sure, this guy, sure. this guy clearly had no compunction about this guy, Steve Harris, the bass player, who's the consistent member right. pretty much through the, the whole founder, thing. the founding right. member. And he's, he's still with the band. I, I think he's the guy but, who came up with the name iron maiden and was just like, well, that's just it. I'm done now. Okay. Right. <laughs> Just cycle people in and out. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, he clearly had no compunction about just rotating through people constantly. And I heard that one guy, it continued after this album, so I guess we could talk about that too. But yeah, he was looking for the right mix of people to come together and make something worldwide. And again, you got to give them some credit. They cycled through a heck of a lot of people, a heck of a lot of versions of the lineup. They were a four-piece, then they were a five-piece, then they went back to a four-piece, now they're a six-piece. It's like... I think my favorite yeah. line from the Wikipedia article is that <laughs> they recruited yet another guitarist in 1977, Bob Sawyer, who was sacked for embarrassing the band on stage by pretending to play guitar with his teeth. <laughs> That's it. You're gone. No. No, the, no gimmicks. The, the guitar player on the album that we're going to talk about here, this this debut, I, I forgot his name, honestly, because the only band member you really need to know is Steve Harris, right? He's, he's the, the constant... But in interviews afterwards, he was saying that like during the time that they were recording the first album, he was listening to George Benson and the Eagles. And Steve Harris was like, no, I don't want any of that different sound. I have in my head what this needs to be. If you don't want you can't you don't even, want to be part of that. You can't even listen out. to other people. I, know. <laughs> I, I, I wrote that to down George. too. Kicked out for listening, admitting to listening to the Eagles. George Benson, he plays a hollow body, right? Get out. <laughs> I never want to see you on stage again. 
But it's not like the it's not like the band was like they were all just a wash in money. I mean, this the first four or five years they were playing the club scene, like the the or rather the pub scene in England, and they had a crappy van that they were traveling around in. They all had day jobs. They were doing this on the weekends. They were taking what little money they bought into buying bigger, louder PA, more elaborate stage production, which, you know, consisted of like a mask of paper mache with like, you know, a fish pump that would shoot blood onto the drummer. I mean, so it's like this this aesthetic of evil and so it's like old times and nights and but post yeah, Pink Floyd. But they want the stage theatrics, but obviously they don't have the budget. But also a very punk vibe which is really odd too because they were diametrically opposed to punk but you listen to it and you're like this isn't that far from that punk scene it's more musically complex i think and in fact at one point when they were when they started gigging i think in 78 or 79 a uh, a manager or a talent scout came up and said hey if you all shave your head i can promote you as like the biggest punk band in the world and they're like no we're metal okay so it's just long hair then but anyway so if we want to talk a little bit about the origin story, Steve Harris, as we said, was was kind of the mastermind of the band. He started out wanting to play drums, but they wouldn't fit in his house, so he he kind of fell back and started playing bass. <laughs> the classic bass player story. <laughs> I was going to play something else, and then I was like, that's too difficult. I guess I'll it's just play the bass. It's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> so he started writing music. And he assembled a band and he talked about he, he, he liked having that prog aspect to it with key changes and tempo changes and time signature changes. So he assembled a band and they started playing in, around England in 1976. Word of mouth started to spread. More and more people started showing up at shows. Again, they still had day jobs, but over the course of a couple years... They added and added and added, and after three years of gigging and, again, cycling members out more often than, you know, toilet paper or whatever, they finally decided to go in and record a demo, which wound up being called the Soundhouse Tapes. So this this is kind of a, a bit of the lore of Iron Maiden. They went in, they only recorded for two days on New Year's Eve because they couldn't afford any other day, and the studio was open and super cheap on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. So they go in. That they sounds a little. These. That sounds familiar to, to me. You know. Yeah. That vibe. <laughs> Personally identify. We'll with that. We'll take the four AM slot. <laughs> it's only two dollars an hour cheaper. I said we'll take it. So they they recorded three demos, and they had the master two inch tape. They had the guy cut it down to quarter inch cassette, and said like, "We'll be back to get. We can't afford to buy the two inch tape right now." And like two weeks later, the studio was like, we can't afford to just have two inch tape sitting around doing nothing. So they wiped over the masters. So all Iron Maiden had now was this, you know, kind of hastily mixed quarter inch cassette version that uh, they wound up releasing, I think, 5,000 copies of. And again, now they're like super hard to find and they're going. This is prior to 1980. Right. Yeah. This is before the actual debut album. So this was like the demo that, that wound up you know, kind of planting the seed around England. So in that line, let's give a little taste of what Iron Maiden, about what this debut album is all about. With a song called Transylvania. It's an instrumental, but it'll give you a little flavor.
All right, so that was Transylvania. It's all uh, instrumental. It's maybe a theme that you'll hear continue throughout this album as well as albums to come, kind of the structure and, and, and the sound. So anyway, Iron Maiden releases this demo. They got it out to a DJ, and uh, some promoter had gotten them some gigs around London, I believe, and wound up... Uh, getting an EMI record exec to come out. He had promised he was going to come out to two or three shows. So in classic, you know, rock band style, like the first two shows were disasters. I think the lead singer got arrested on the first show and Steve Harris, the bass player who didn't sing the songs, tried to sing them. And it was just a mess. The, I think the, the third gig that this promoter came out to said he walked in or so legend has it. He walked in and the club was packed way beyond its limit. The walls were dripping with sweat. The crowd was bumping up and down. And he looked at the, uh, uh, their manager and said, I don't need to hear a note. I want these guys. So they wound up signing up on EMI, Iron Maiden, for a three-album deal. And they said that they, they wanted three albums for consistency, which I just thought was hilarious <laughs> because it is the least consistent band in the world. I think their so, sound and, is pretty consistent, though. Yes. Yeah, the, the style, I, I think member-wise, right? And there's definitely a lot of turmoil where, you know, it, it wasn't a a consistent product, I'll say, that they were putting out at shows because the lead singer was on drugs or the, the, uh, the drummer burst into flames <laughs> or whatever the story might have been. And it was also funny that EMI really wanted a metal act. So it was between Iron Maiden and Def Leppard. They wound up going with Iron Maiden, probably financially wound up being a, a, a slightly a slightly better decision. I don't So see, the voice Def Leppard sold a hell of a lot of albums in the eighties, man. I, I gotta imagine the immediate return for like the, you know, first couple of Def Leppard albums versus the first couple of Iron Maiden albums. I I I have to imagine Def Leppard outsold them. Oh, that's long, a great point. Long term, I would, I would think so. I think people are still pouring sugar on it for sure. <laughs> Sadly, I was one of those people. Man, that was that was a third setter, man. Second or third from the end of the night. Everybody's drunk. Man, mm. pour some sugar on me is a great sing along. You're, trying, where, to, you're where... trying to like be the wingman for all the guys in the in the audience. Like, right. let's try to get you guys late tonight. Let's do it. <laughs> where in the set did you guys play Transylvania, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> that was sound check. That was first set when it was still a little sleepy. Yeah, the dueling guitar solos and all that jazz. So the, the voice that you hear on this album, if you've heard many of, I'll say, the big hits from Iron Maiden, like Number of the Beast, Run to the Hills, some of the, the more commercially successful or that have hit mainstream, there's a different singer that, that you'll probably notice. He's, he's much more operatic, uh, a guy by the name of Bruce Dickinson. They recorded the first two albums with a guy named Paul Diano, who honestly didn't have the greatest voice. He had a very limited range and, in my mind, fit better with that punk scene versus the opera of the the metal genre by the way i was just doing a little bit of research here the first three Def leopard albums first one sold a million copies in the u.s second one sold two million copies in the u.s third one sold over 10 million copies in the u.s i gotta think they outsold the first three Def, the first three um iron maiden albums yeah so iron maiden didn't actually hit the u.s until their 
tour for their second album called Killers. So they got a gig opening for Kiss across the U.S. Comes uh, full circle. Right. So that was kind of their introduction. So when I was looking at the album statistics and stuff, there was nothing for the U.S. for this album. Because it really wasn't until years later that this album would kind of break its way into the American scene. All right. So talking about the, the that was a, a bit of the history of Iron Maiden, the history of this album titled Iron Maiden. So they, they recorded this in December of 79. It was released in April of 1980. It went straight to number four in the UK, number four album. And it was produced by a guy named Will Malone, who just a month or two after they released it, the band kind of decided they hated what it sounded like. Years later, Steve Harris said that the content of the album he was in love with because they had been building those songs for, for the better part of four years. And this guy, Will Malone, who produced it just didn't care. You know, there were stories about, you know, the guys pouring their heart out in the studio and they asked him like, Will, what'd you think? And he was smoking a cigar and reading newspaper and said like, eh, whatever, do another take. So they, the band uh, generally did not like the, the production of the album. I'm, I'm uh, curious as to which of the songs they were pouring their heart out on these aren't like super emotive lyrics you know yeah uh, but I, they uh, have to be physically taxing though you yeah, gotta admit sure. that. Yeah. no i 100 percent would agree with that but i i think of pouring my heart out and i'm thinking like you know like uh yeah, i don't even like this song but like bono in the studio recording one or something like that you know it's like really getting down on but yeah anyway I will I will reserve my my shit talking on the lyrical content of these songs for later on in the podcast. They're it's, really deep though, especially yeah. if you're into like I don't know, prostitutes and kidnapping. Right. <laughs> I was gonna say with Magic the Gathering, maybe I don't know if like that's your wheelhouse. We should probably level set for the audience as to where we're at in the genre of metal because I that's, think you mentioned that's a good that, point. You mentioned you were a little bit concerned and. I think what you're referring to is the fact that we definitely aren't metal fans or metal heads of any speak sort. Speak for yourself. <laughs> okay, I'll speak for myself. I know very little about heavy metal in the way that I, it's it's one of these genres that has an extremely devoted and intense fan base. Let's put it that way. Clearly, I'm glancingly aware of many of the classic metal bands from Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, on through to you know Metallica and so on, but... This was brand new for me. This was a completely fresh listen. I went back and listened to their biggest hits, that is Iron Maiden's biggest hits, the ones that aren't even on this record, and I don't really know those songs either, I have to be honest. So <laughs> it was pretty darn new for me. I'm coming in pretty fresh, and anything, I don't know if you call this the birth of like thrash metal or speed metal, or if it's like prog metal because it kind of rests between the 70s and 80s, whatever you want to call it, it felt like a new genre for me. I assume most of us felt something like that. So get ready for some uneducated opinions. That's what I'm trying to say. One thing that I will say, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, metal fans being like super devoted and whatnot. Honestly, like one of the more pleasant experiences that I've had as like an, a concert going adult is realizing that like metalheads are just kind of big old lovable nerds. And like literally the nicest crowds I've ever been to have been at like metal shows. Like you go to like hipster shows full of assholes. You go to metal shows and everybody's just so psyched that you're there. And they're just like, yeah, man, this is so right. fantastic. Awesome way to be man. And like, that's delightful. Cause I feel like they get this rap as like being really hardcore and scary. I'm like, no, they're actually super nice. It's like the nicest environment. 
I yes, I no, I agree, and that's I will say that I think at some point in the last ten years, I broke through a little barrier in my mind of the silliness of what we might call cock rock, which I think this sort of falls into, where I I now like it and accept that it's not to be taken seriously, whether it's the devil worship stuff or whether it's the you know insane the face paint the blood like whatever all that stuff is sort of a, a version of posturing and 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 part part of it as Tom described it was the fans kind of helping me see that you well, sort of look costume. at them as a yeah you look at them as a reflection of what's really going on here I think the pomp and circumstance is kind of so ridiculous that I find it comical now I, I didn't actually discover Iron Maiden during that period but I'm talking more about like the Judas priests of the world or you know people that are just so over the top you have to just smile that's that's sort of my take on that genre. So I I have a question, Adam. You might have an answer for this, but did they invent the sort of ghoulish aesthetic? Like, it was that cartoony ghoulishness. I feel like is like so common in metal bands that came out of that era and even to this day. And I'm just wondering, like, were they the originals to do that? So there were a couple. Some of the band members that came in and out were also in smaller metal bands. So I don't know if I would say that Iron Maiden, quote unquote, invented it, but they were probably the most popular and the most uh, well-promoted version of that. Because, Rob, you had mentioned Judas Priest, and it's like, I've listened to a little bit of Judas Priest, and it felt very similar to Iron Maiden, right? They may not have been singing about demons and horses flying through the night on a winged whatever, but... Priest felt very Iron Maiden, mainly for those operatic vocals and and just the hard hitting guitars and drums. I, my take is they are one of the. Pro- I think you have to put them in context in a way that might be difficult in forty years later, and yet I think they are one of the progenitors of a lot of these stylistic choices. So one of the things I did, I was trying to listen to at least a few other things for context. Nineteen eighty was kind of a big year for records in this sphere let's call it metal very generally a very popular judas priest album called british steel came out it's the one that has breaking the law on it oh, yeah. same same year as as this iron maiden record back in black by acdc maybe only tangentially related to this genre but you know what i mean ace of spades by motorhead and heaven and hell which was the first black sabbath record where dio took over as the lead singer so i do listen i'm not super educated on the topic admittedly Tell me I'm wrong in the emails and the comment strings, but it occurs to me that this is sort of the beginning of something new called the 80s and how appropriate that it is 1980. And just as another note, I wanted to go and look at sort of the big four metal groups and when they debuted, what are considered now the big four metal groups sort of of the 80s. We're still three years away from the first Metallica record, Kill Em All. We're still three years away from the first Slayer record. We're still three years away from the first Pantera record. I, what about Megadeth? I, also, a couple of years away from that, maybe well, five years away from that. At least five years away from yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. So, I do think it's safe to say that this band had probably a quite an outsized influence on a lot of what came after it. And I'll just show some of my hand right off the bat. I had a really fun time listening to the record. I think there's plenty to laugh about and goof on about the songs and this style. And I'm not suggesting that I'm going to become the biggest Iron Maiden fan or anything, but it was a lot of fun to listen to. And it kind of, it for me, it helped me understand the connector between the 70s version of heavy, in quotations, and the 80s version of heavy. Because we were, 
clearly there was some kind of transition that happened from this blues-based Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, slow it down, you know, to this kind of speed. Speed cl- metal. Yeah. Speed metal, almost a classical music kind of vibe to it or operatic vibe to yeah, it. Mm-hmm. Right. I wonder how much the pieces. popularity of cocaine had to do with that. And I mean that in a serious way. Like if they were <laughs> yeah, like, sure. yeah, we're just doing a lot of coke and we're on speed all the time. And so let's play some fast music, you know. The lead singer had to had to bounce because of that. He mm. was uh he, he he sang on the first two and on that Kiss tour he just was in a self destruct mode and just couldn't handle it and wound up uh they booted him and that's when they found Bruce Dickinson. Hmm. Now for for me so I got really there was a period I don't know early two thousands when I got really into System of a Down and I started to trace my way backwards and like the different as we all know the way genres start and then the subgenres branch out yes. and just have ridiculous the, the names, onion. right? Like, <laughs> yes, exactly. So like a system of a down was considered, um, what, what did they call it? Not thrash metal. It was um, spaz metal, which I get because those guys are just like complete spazzes. There's like sludge metal, uh, which was like the Deftones and Opeth, which is just all like everything is detuned to like C and it's just. I saw yeah, Opeth keep... actually, yeah, not too long ago. They're, they're badass musicians, yeah. right? Again, not my style. There's another. Um, there's another subgenre that's called like jank or chug. Right. I'm serious. <laughs> it then, sounds like uh, you're talking about like street names for heroin or something. Like yeah. That. Right. <laughs> Spaz, jank, chug. Oh yeah, I got it all, man. <laughs> Bart Simpson, um, <laughs> body bag. Right. right. <laughs> I I also feel, I'm sure Phil at least must have noticed. I mean, this is this could also be called a prog record. Like it seems like yeah. progressive rock had a moment in the '70s, and I suppose jazz fusion kind of had a moment right in the '70s. But nowadays, it feels like if you want to play really complex, fast, intense passages with a lot of changing time signatures this is the kind of band you're going to be in yeah you don't have a lot of options right (laughs) (laughs) it's not uh not dance music (laughs) no probably probably not probably yeah it depends on how much coke you're on (laughs) i you know i'll be i'll be honest i i'm still in the uh understanding phase of iron maiden it didn't really like i didn't really like quite click I feel like so many things were thrown at me from like, like you said, sort of like sped up Black Sabbath or or Led Zeppelin riffs. Definitely some pretty direct, I think, sort of like punk sort of stuff. But then absolutely like the way the guitars are stacked is actually pretty unique, um, you know, or, or at least like you weren't hearing this on Zeppelin and Sabbath records. Right, the way the guitars are stacked, Definitely not. ironically, is more like the Eagles or something, like one of these nights or something, right? Like Life in the Fast, like yeah, you know, right. yeah. Uh, but, but then they're also, and I wonder too. We're just talking about this being like a transitional sort of thing, right? Like, does this is this new wave? Like, how does this tie into new wave? Um, but the reason I say that is because there is a bit of like a DIY sort of vibe on this. Like there's a, there's like a grungy thing that I think you would sort of see continue a bit in the New York scene, right? Again, probably around this time, maybe into the early eighties with bands like Talking Heads and television, 
right? And the Ramones, right? And, and it's not just the sound. It's actually also the sort of like, no, like I'm going to make the best out of like, I'm going to use the tools I have, right? To make the best thing I can have. I don't know. Maybe Iron Maiden just makes the same record like nine more times like ACDC or sorry, 42 more times like yeah. ACDC or something. That might, that might be the case. Yeah. You know, I, I got to say as, as the bass player, and just like, oh, this is a band that it was uh, creatively driven by the bass player. I was expecting more of a low end sound to it. I agree. There's I'll a agree. lot of bass, but there's not a lot of low end. And I think it's... it might be his playing style. He plays high generally, but like I was expecting a little bit more kind of chest thumping out of it. That was the sure. first. That was literally the first note I wrote. That it was so much tinnier than I was expecting it to be. Partially, and this is even before I knew it was run. You know, masterminded sort of by a bass player and yeah part of it's that he's trying to play this melodic version of of bass but i think it has something to do with why they were probably why he hates the production on it right because it, it has none of the the depth of you know black sabbath just has so much low end like they just lay into chords and you're just you know you feel it in your heart it feels evil it feels evil yeah exactly <laughs> this feels like it's trying to be evil um yeah i just want to give you guys so as, as a kind of a little little side journey here, uh, I was uneducated on Iron Maiden as well. I, you know, I feel like I, again, like there are some metal bands that I like, but I'm not like a metal fan. And so I was like, oh, I'll learn a little bit about them. Go to Wikipedia. That's what I was like, you know, let me go straight to the source. And so I went to Iron Maiden's web webpage and like just reading the sort of about the band on Iron Maiden's webpage, like, this particular type of copywriting, like, I just find always fascinating. Like, who the hell writes this guy's stuff? The opening lines are, Iron Maiden are an institution. Over the course of 46 years, they have come to embody a spirit of fearless creative independence, ferocious dedication to their fans, and a cheerful indifference to their critics that's won them a following that spans every culture, generation, and time zone. Like, did they write that? Did they hire somebody to write that? Like, because it, it goes on. There's like 17 paragraphs or something like that. And it's all just this, like, you know, rhetorical hand job that they're like giving themselves. <laughs> like, I don't, like, it's almost worse if you pay some college student can to write that about you. Can you read that back, but instead of saying Iron Maiden, put my name in place of Iron Maiden? <laughs> so, see how I feel about it. <laughs> Steve Harris wrote it and then just gave it to somebody and they were like, just change all the eyes to Iron Maiden. <laughs> right. the, no, the truth is they probably do have a brand manager though, right? At this sure. point in their they career. Absolutely. Be because yeah. of their aforementioned yeah. savviness. And when you've been a band this long and you haven't changed your sound that much, which again, I didn't even come close to scratching the surface of listening to the rest of their catalog, but I'm just taking a wild guess here that it hasn't changed super, super markedly. You got the brand is the brand is legacy, which so that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Right. I get it, but it's just it's so like masturbatory to read it. I just it's so cringeworthy. But I I found it to be like a delightful little side journey down that just like because every band has that like. But I also feel like you're right, Rob. Like that's not on like Radiohead's. Uh, you know, I'm sure Radiohead's <laughs> right up is like I don't know. We make music, and if you don't like it, I don't care. <laughs> right. Yeah. But like, I, I mean, I'm old, just saying like, legacy bands. You're right. It is all just about like, let me tell you why we changed the world. Yeah, I, I would say that even Metallica would would not take that approach on their website. I'm I'm guessing now because 
it's the same thing that would probably have some hardcore metal fans say that Metallica betrayed their metal roots, as I'm, as I've heard many people in passing say. Right. But they also changed into something else. Like, like it or not, they matured in some way. Anyway, you know what? I have no idea if Iron Maiden matured. I shouldn't even really say that. I seriously have no clue. A little, a little note on on the the bombastic nature of their their website. I saw that they did a rock show in Brazil in the late '80s, and there were three hundred and fifty thousand people at the show. Yeah, like I, I, like how do you ever? be a normal human after that so i i just don't foresee it happening i'm sure the sound fidelity was beautiful for oh, all yeah, 350,000 of, of those people it sounded great well it's so sound fidelity and well this this is kind of a lead into us us diving into some of the tracks uh i i dug up some uh concert footage of them in 80 or 81 and i actually liked those raw live concert versions better than the album version here, like even some of the stuff that kind of seemed corny, you know, Charlotte, the harlot, right? Like that's like, for, for me, we'll, we'll hit that soon. But like live has a different vibe. It seems like, again, it feels like a punk song almost, but anyway, so let's uh, do a deep dive into some pre-selected tracks here. We're going to jump in with track one on album one here. This is the, the debut song and the debut album. This one's called Prowler. What'd you guys think? I don't get it. <laughs> there, there are so many things about Iron Maiden that I feel like I like it checks so many boxes for me. And this song is no, um, this is, you know, this song's no different. I think it has a cool like stereo mix right away. It sort of builds up interestingly. It has cool guitar parts. Uh, cool guitar work. The singing is whatever. Let's just pass on that for now. Yeah, I just don't. I don't. I I'll don't, agree with that. I don't get it. I don't. I don't fully get Iron Maiden yet. I yeah, I disagree. I I liked it. I was pleasantly surprised when I first turned on the first track on my first listen through of the record. I think it's kind of a jam. It's definitely in that realm, like we said earlier, of cock rock. It's like it reminds me a little bit of Judas Priest famous hit breaking the law for instance which i have come to love even though it's ridiculous also and a couple things that jumped out to me one is this song feels a little like a mission statement which is a good thing for a first track on a first album i think in a song like this you see you see their strengths and their flaws (laughs) you see the harmonized guitars you see this kind of proggy forward-thinking speed metal you know one, one thing i think they did here we keep I keep mentioning Judas Priest or whatever hard whatever the heavy bands of the '70s were, but they cranked up the tempo. They definitely I I assume purposely said, you know what, Judas Priest, you're sitting there at 120. Black Sabbath, you're sitting down there at you know 100 or whatever. We're taking this up to 150 consistently. 
throughout this album. Like we're going fast and hard, right? And then, but it's still got a little bit of a foot in like a '70s rock song. Like there's, it's not too far from. If you told me this was an Alice Cooper deep cut or something, it, you know, it wouldn't be so unbelievable to me. And it has atrocious lyrics, which I assume we can quote from shortly. <laughs> They, like, in all honesty, <laughs> they did it so many times on this album. It's like their go-to is the just write one verse and a chorus and double it, or sometimes triple it. Um, and I just I I I get a little bit frustrated by that. Um, the other thing that like I will say frustrated me in the song is the the fact that the the main vocal line for the verse and for the chorus is doubled by a guitar the entire time. Yes. And it gets kind of grating by the end of the song. I would have liked it so much more without that. Cause I agree. It comes in, it rips, it's got, it's it moves. It's got really good energy, but like towards the end of the song where they're coming back in and he's doing that. Wah, 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 I'm just like, just drop that. You don't need when, that. When, or, it's or funny. Bring it at the end of the song. But don't when, have it the when that, time. there was, there was a point at the song in the first listen where I think, cause I, I was coming in pretty cold on Iron Maiden. Uh, the, there was, it was probably the first listen where they, they were doubling the, the vocal with the, the guitar. And I thought, I hope they don't do this on all the songs. Like I hope this isn't their thing. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll really wear me down. <laughs> There's a there's like a guitar breakdown at like two minutes in this song where there must be four guitars stacked on each other, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I dig that. My my I note here that, is yeah. that like it reminded me of again. This is like another side story, but like you have to like guitar solos to like this kind of music. You oh, just yeah. have oh, to be into oh, guitar yeah. solos. Yeah. And yeah. like it never had occurred to me before this incident that I'm about to talk about that some people didn't like guitar solos, but I remember I was in college. I had, I was spending like a month down in Nashville with some girl that I was super crushing on that you guys probably remember from college, super insane hipster. And we're like hanging out with a bunch of her friends and like the radio's on. And like one of them's like, Oh yeah, that's a great guitar solo. And I took him as genuine and was like, Oh yeah, totally dude. And like the entire room, was just like, what the hell are you talking about? Guitar solos suck. They're so lame. And I was like, People don't like guitar solos. What the hell is wrong that's, with you guys? That's a thing. Yeah. What? <laughs> Doesn't uh, every song have a guitar solo? <laughs> I don't suppose it's you... mostly solos in this on this album. I was gonna say, yeah. I just I just wish they had featured the lead guitar just a bit more. Here. <laughs> they seem like some talented chaps, you know. So can, can was... we just talk about the lyric here? That really, like, let's just break down. I think this might be the worst lyric on an album of bad lyrics. Well, you see me, he says in the Prowler, well, you see me crawling through the bushes with it wide open. Let's talk about what it is. What you seeing, girl? What's wide open? It is, is it his I, fly? Is I pictured him as the, uh, it's the flasher with the trench coat. Right. You know, he's, he's got the coat predator. wide open. And he's right. like, he's not actually like, I don't think he's actually like attacking women. I think he's like jerking it in the bushes as they walk by, basically. Song one, track one. Let's just <laughs> get that mission statement out there. <laughs> track one, album one. Yeah. He's just he's painting painting an image with his words here. He's, yeah, at least he's using his words to paint. <laughs> oh my god! Man, my my only other note there was talking about all the guitar solos. I didn't think the guitar solo was very good on this song. <laughs> like he shreds it a little bit, 
but the bends are pretty rough. There's, like he, there are a lot of guitar solos on this record that, and, and I'm not trying to say they're bad, and I'll definitely say that they clearly do set off a certain Hammett style, right? Like Totally. You know? Um, but some of them are just fast. Like other than yeah, that, right. they're just, he's just playing a lot of notes in a short period of time. <laughs> and again, the, the, the bends in this solo kill me here. Let's, let's play that real quick. He just fails to hit, to hit the next pitch. Like it's like, it, it, on it this week's amateur. episode of Adam's Problems with right. Pitch. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Actually, I didn't even take that much. You're right, though. I didn't take that much note of the solos, however, because I think when even when you just guys just said solos, I was thinking guitar passages, of which there are hundreds, uh, right. right? I gotcha. All right, so let's move on to our next track here. This continues our prog train along the way here. This one's called Phantom of the Opera. Badass! How dare yeah, you guys? Yeah. This was my favorite one. Yeah. This is definitely is my badass. favorite track. Don't get me wrong. I like this. Is my favorite song on the album too. I think it's really badass. But you cannot deny that. Like they're just a bunch of nerds, and oh, it's great. Sure. It's I'm a nerd. Dope. I love nerds. Yeah. Right. Right. So, yeah. To me, uh, among many effective little things they do on this, but the main thing, right, is this switch between th- uh, three and four in the time signature that gives mm-hmm. you this great weird sense of tension and release. I mean, mm-hmm. you can. I don't know. Now we're mentioning Gentle Giant, I feel like, on every podcast. But I got some Gentle Giant vibes on this song, too. It, this one gave me Heart of the Sunrise vibes for the same reason. It's totally. just something about the way the drums and the bass and the way they play with three and four. Yeah, that I, I totally was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. You <laughs> so, know, I, I didn't mention it earlier, but like when I heard Transylvania, I got a Rush vibe. Like, I really, I got, like, an XYZ Rush vibe from mm. that. And, like, I can, again, I can totally see, like, Rush was just, like, uh, the kinder, gentler, more Canadian version of <laughs> of Iron Maiden, you know? Totally. Well, so can we say, too, because I found myself listening to this the other night and explaining myself to someone else, so maybe for the benefit of the audience, I think what they do really effectively here by having pa- a little passage in 3-4 and then passage in 4-4 is they sort of hold you. It's like the tension and release concept, but a rhythmic tension and release as opposed to a tonal tension and release. And they might overuse it. It's a rather long song with a lot of passages, but it really works. When you're in the 3-4 passage, you're kind of on tenter hooks, so to speak. And then when it drops into 4-4, you feel like you can headbang again. It's It's just a really effective tool. I'm surprised more heavy bands don't use it a little more effectively again i'm really stationed in all these prog bands that we all just mentioned like gentle giant and yes and 
Rush to a lesser extent. But one more thing that this this song really jumped out at me in Transylvania also, or ironic because Transylvania is the next song. This has a very Castlevania vibe. Yes. Meaning the oh, Nintendo music scary. of the 1980s, I think, takes a lot from this. Yeah, I dig that. So, I totally hear that. Well, and just just to stay on the Castlevania thing for one second, I've always loved Nintendo music. I think it's, I've I've always thought it was kind of underrated the the Japanese composers that were making some of these these themes in the '80s, and it now occurs to me that they must have been at least partially influenced by this kind of music. And then later, there were these bands that would play really heavy prog intense versions of these same songs. So one band is called Mini Bosses. Which I think Tom and I actually went to the concert one time. Oh it was yeah, awesome! They are awesome. That it was, was awesome. <laughs> yeah, they play really so good. many yeah. notes so fast, and it's you know. <laughs> anyway, so it, 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 it listening to bands like that. The other band is called The Advantage. I think I think Mini Bosses isn't on Spotify, but The Advantage is on Spotify. But it'll give you a sense. It'll both remind you of Nintendo games, but also remind you of how intense that music actually is as written, because you're hearing these people play it. Anyway, so that's. I felt a lot of that, and thus I felt an immediate kinship for Phantom of the Opera. Well, it, it, it also like the uh, the sort of Eastern European mystique of you know vampirism and all that stuff going on. Like it's very in line with their aesthetic. You know, again, it's that sort of like uh, it's almost like they were just like, how can we get moms to hate us? What can we do to make moms just absolutely hate us? Because, like, I don't think that the music in and of itself is something that a mom would hate, but, like, they're just sort of like, yeah, you know, our whole vibe has to be, like, you must be pissing your parents off by liking us. There's And they were uh, they were talking to, I actually think it was, like, the promoter or the guy who's in charge of, like, marketing and merchandise and everything, and he was saying that there's just a different uh, sense of, self in england like they don't take this stuff seriously like oh did you see that guy lick the sword and then he cut the arm off the beast and then he said hail satan and they're all like yeah ha 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 it's a show and in the u.s they're organizing like album burnings like 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 the people in the u.s are not in on the joke uh so it's just funny to to see like what they're doing here and i feel like they're originally their target audience was a british crowd that would just kind of got it versus America where people are like, oh, they're spreading Satanism. Like Well, but ironically, like that was a huge part of their appeal to the kids that wanted to piss their parents off. Oh, they're the like, Satan stuff, absolutely. Hundred percent. It's like, you know, you it's almost like uh listen, you're just some like, you know, stringy haired, lower middle class, rat mustache having loser. And you can be that and listen to disco, or or you can be that and listen to Def Leppard, or you can be that and be like the guy that's got the Iron Maiden shirt on, and people are like, "Oh, dude, don't mess with that guy. That guy is crazy." <laughs> what, He's a devil what worshiper. What is the, the Satan stuff? Can you dig more into Iron Maiden's association with the Dark, the dark Lord? Yeah. Yeah. All the best bands are affiliated with Satan. Everybody. Well, yeah, sure. Satanica. Um, yes. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if they have a Satan connection. Uh, at all directly 
but it just the idea of like annoying parents i think was probably a marketing strategy Let's yeah say. okay sure so I was, was i and i i thought this looking at cuz i i i referenced that uh that line i just referenced was from the simpsons spinal tap episode right yes um, right right I believe it was from that episode, but like was Spinal Tap doing a direct rip on Iron Maiden? Because like I looking even at the picture, they look very similar. Yeah. I I, I thought of Spinal I think Tap. With the, the monster in the background, right? There's always this Eddie the Head, which was their mascot. He always appeared on their large stage sets as like hovering over the band or something like that. So I do think that that was a direct callback to, uh, did to you go head. down an Iron Maiden wormhole at some point where like you yourself were watching Iron Maiden VHS tapes? Where, how did you I acquire th- this wealth of Maiden knowledge? So YouTube has a ton of just sure. 80s live um, Maiden shows. And uh, again, one of the songs we'll talk about in a minute, Charlotte the Harlot, uh, the live version from like 81, like it rocks because it's raw and the guy's screaming. And I know he doesn't have a great voice, right? Me obsessed with pitch. And the guy just kind of growls through the whole album. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I, that kind of sent me on that wormhole where I started clicking on the you know, bigger and bigger shows. And with each subsequent year, their stage set grew and this Eddie character that was always there grew. One more thing I want to mention about Phantom of the Opera is that in, and Phil, you kind of got the jump on me here by mentioning Kirk Hammett of Metallica, but the solo sure. is so Kirk Hammett. Like, definitely Kirk Hammett listened to this and was like, yes, I will now start a band. I'm in. <laughs> I, I will sound like this. <laughs> <laughs> I will sound like this. And I'm talking, I, I didn't timestamp it, I apologize. But it's right before the Don't Fear the Reaper-esque restart in the song. The Adam, the one thing that I, I I'm surprised you did not mention because it did stick out to me is that um, the backups, the don't you stray backups that they do, they're really not pitched well. Like you can tell they, that they did not have a lot of takes at that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That was a, a bit sour. Um, my my, while I do like the song, I, I by the way, this song comes in at over seven minutes. So if you're gonna listen to this one, just get comfy. Um, I thought that the that real fast kind of odd timed thing just felt sloppy. Like they either it needed to just be a rap or it needed to be instrumental. The fact that they tried to put words over that it felt sloppy and jumbled every time through, yeah, I, uh, and that I, kind of annoyed me. I do think there's something about some of the. I guess I want to say, like, not less produced, but some of the moments that, like, feel a little rawer or a little, like, a little forced that, like, I, I kind of appreciate. And I think it it does lend something to, like, the sort of DIY aesthetic. Like, these guys don't feel like seasoned, like, classical musicians who picked up electric guitars and grew their hair long. These do, yeah, these do feel like dudes who just play, picked up a guitar in, in, in grade school. <laughs> and it's probably if they had kept a lineup that was consistent for four sure. years, I guarantee it would be a much better performed because I, I also went 
YouTube uh, wormhole, uh, they had some isolated bass tracks from uh, Steve Harris, and they're okay. People like laud him as one of the greatest bass players ever or whatever. It, it felt sloppy, yeah, right? I'm like I feel like there are many, there are many other bass players that could easily. It, it's not that fast, right? Like a lot of sure. the stuff on here is fast, but it's not uh, unobtainable by a seasoned, uh, well-practiced bass player. So yeah, I I felt that things were sloppy on the album too, and that's that. All right, so. Let's move this train along to what I consider, not to poison the well here, what I consider the low light of the album, Charlotte the Harlot. Okay, this is bad, and but but it's ambitious. You know, it's an ambitious fail. I think. Where is the ambition that you're talking about? <laughs> well, here's 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 my point. I mean, there's a lot going on. I guess there's a lot going on in all these tracks. But I, to me, the tracks that stand out as the most, the worst on this record, the ones I most want to skip, are the slow jams that go on for six minutes, right? And are un and have unearned or no pathos to them a song like this and i noticed it's the only one credited to the guitar player the guitar player that steve harris had fired and then rehired and now i think has been with the band for the last 40 years or whatever he's apparently according to wikipedia he's never this is the only song that he is solely credited with writing in the band's history so my thought was that it's just him trying to compete with the other guy throw a bunch of random sections at the wall and try to string it together okay we got a general theme on this album of prostitutes and criminals and weird creepy behavior in the bushes let's just roll with it that's all see here's the thing that i i in reading the lyrics to this song you know they break it down um and he's basically he's not necessarily talking about a prostitute he infers that this woman is a prostitute um, but like, he's also saying that like they were together for a while. He loved her. Like they, ha they were a thing. Uh, and she said she loved him. I'm thinking that it's just that tired old, like, you know, trope of like this woman used to be with me and then she left me. So I'm just going to call her a whore because now she's having sex with other people. Um, and that's the thing that I was like, I was, I found that to be a little bit annoying as a subject matter um, not to be like super woke about it or anything like that but it's like yeah she broke up with you move on also you're an iron maiden i'm sure <laughs> right. you've had sex with an obscene but, amount of people also we should say this is apparently the first in a series of songs where they write about this character throughout yeah, her career so, like, so you know so they have their own little like journey to the center of the earth game henge adventure about Charlotte the Harlot that plays out over forty two records. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, just making sure. And you know, a bunch I, of VHS tapes, Phil. Don't forget the VHS. Know, tapes. Like again, again though, again, uh, just to be clear and to be to to be authentic, right? This checks a lot of boxes for me, right? Like, I, this this or this record did not speak to me, but. This, like, 
that like I'm immediately curious like is there should I go listen to all 19 Charlotte the Harlot songs should I listen to them in the order they were released and then also the sequential order that they go in the story like what what should I do with this information now okay serious question and we kind of rolled over the song Transylvania also and we don't we don't need to focus on it but it's an instrumental track did they ever release an instrumental album because like a lot of metal have to say that if there were no vocals at all i would find it more enjoyable no doubt they would have sold fewer t-shirts however no you just have like uh you know on your live show you just have like a billboard in the background that just flashes satan just just says satan all the time (laughs) so you get that affiliation going on but like (laughs) you don't actually have to say it (laughs) i so this this song um has what I find are, are potentially the worst lyrics on the entire album. There's a line. <clears throat> well, Charlotte, your drawers are off color too. Oh, because you've been making love all day. Good God. That, what a terrible picture to paint. That's really gross. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, just terrible. <laughs> yeah. The drop off point of like let's go down to something that's like a little bit more emotional it seems needless it seems tacked on and like i i thought if the song just ripped straight through without that like let's try to be emotional and talk about how i loved you like no i don't need that just rip straight through i would have enjoyed it a lot more agreed yeah i don't they don't do slow very well they do not there's no nothing else matters on this one Sadly, <laughs> I, when they get went slow, I got like a weird in between of sort of like the English rock thing. Like they were just like a little more major than most metal bands, right? But I also got just like a taste of Skinnerd. I got a taste of like a simple kind of man sort of vibe. I was thinking like Queensrÿche almost. Mm. Oh, but that was later, right? Wasn't it? Yeah, no, that's definitely later. I'm saying like I got that vibe. That's like that's. That was a band that I was maybe a little bit more familiar with, and I was like, "Oh yeah." I mean, not that I like yeah. know a ton of Queensrÿche stuff, but like I know there's <laughs> you know, they had a bunch of videos I watched. You know, supposedly that's how they outed the guitar player for liking the Eagles, is that they noticed he was much more passionate and into the solos and the slow songs than his heart really just wasn't in it when he was soloing over Charlotte the Harlot. They're like, "Wait a minute, what's going on? Let's check this guy's Spotify history." <laughs> You're out. <laughs> Lying eyes. <laughs> You're definitely out. <laughs> Poor guy. Who's this George Benson character? He's a bad influence on you, son. All right, so let's bring this this metal train home with the last song we're going to talk about, which is also the last song on the album, entitled Iron Maiden. So we've got a song called Iron Maiden on an album called Iron Maiden by a band called Iron Maiden, let's it's the trifecta that alan yeah, talked about you exactly. get the iron maiden iron maiden iron maiden if, for the if they for the had MTV made it role. if they had six, made six, an mtv six. video for this yeah 11 year old me would have been very pleased
another song where they rhyme wares with lair? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. The fact that, that you guys even pick up these lyrics is beyond me. <laughs> I just copy and paste them into a Google Doc and then read them. Um, because I got to tell you, when I first listened to the song, I ha- I listened to the album through. I hadn't looked at any of the song titles, and I was just listening to the album. I couldn't figure out that they were saying Iron Maiden because their mealy mouth pronunciation of the word Iron Ma- of the words Iron Maiden in the song is like I'm in, I'm in, and so I was like I was like oh Iron Maiden that's what you're you're saying the name of your band on the name of the on the album named after your band. The document that. in that vein, the documentaries could have used subtitles a couple of times. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I went back and rewound. It was like, what is? Wait, what? What is he saying? Hang on, rewind. So I, I should note that early in the band, uh, when they were promoting, they would usually end. This was their big finale. This is when the big uh, Eddie monster thing on stage would spew blood or (laughs) it just sounds funny uh would spew red smoke out of his eyes and then the tour managers and roadies would have uh these eddie eddie the head masks and they would come out on stage during this song with like machetes and a sword or like a smoke machine and the crowd would go wild so wait, can we? Yeah, can we talk about Eddie the Head for a second? Because we've alluded to it. He's the guy on the cover of the record, right? Do you know anything right. else about the creation of this dude? So or because like, in my opinion, all hats off to their business savviness. They have a very recognizable aesthetic. It's a terrible aesthetic in my opinion. It's like really fucking dumb, but yeah. it is admittedly memorable. I read about. Apparently, they found that album cover that a guy had made that album cover. His name was uh, Derek Riggs. Um, and uh, he originally just made it as like a separate album, as like a separate piece of art. Um, and he called it, um, hold on for one second, I'm, I'm going to pull up what he actually called it. He called it something in the neighborhood, oh, Electric Matthew Says Hello. And that was like the original work. And the guy had no hair. And they were like, oh, you got to give him hair because if he's bald, it looks punk. And we don't want to look punk. You got to give him hair. And then so he made hair for it. And then they basically just stuck with that. And he basically throughout the 80s and 90s did like all of their album covers. And then later, like other people started doing it. And he like his association with them like dropped off. But he uh, yeah, like he just like made it. He was like an artist who like got kicked out of art school. Um uh, and then they randomly happened upon that. Um, and, and then the became the th- third longest running member of Iron Maiden. Yeah. <laughs> and the only other thing that he did the was, uh, the only other thing of note that he did that I could find was he made an album cover for a band called the Iron Maidens an all female Iron Maiden wow. <laughs> tribute band, which I mean, what? that's just right there for the taking. Come on. <laughs> what a stunning lack of creativity in that name. Yes. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. So that was a good five minutes worth of thought they put into that one. Char- Charlotte, the- Charlotte, the Harlots was right there. Charlotte and the Harlots. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's Charlotte and the Harlots would have been great. Yeah. So there's a whole world around Iron Maiden. There's a whole lore. There's there's just a whole thing I don't understand, and I would really have to go deep to really 
have any chance of really, really, truly getting this. I don't know if it's worth your time. Yeah, I, I think we got it. <laughs> yeah, right. We hit this. We hit this first album, which is a great end point here. So we reviewed our songs. We've been talking about Iron Maiden's debut album from 1980 titled Iron Maiden, which featured six musicians out of the I think 25 that uh, had played with them uh, in the first few years. So let's kick it around the room to determine whether or not this album deserves to be on the 1001 albums you must hear before you die. Let's send it over to Phil first. Yeah, so on the topic of Iron Maiden's Iron Maiden, is this one of the 1001 records you have to listen to before you die? I'm going to pass. I'm going to say no, and here's why. I mean, at the top level, I just didn't get it. Uh, maybe, maybe it will come to me in the future. Uh, there are a lot, like I've said many times, it checks a lot of boxes for me. Things similar to what I've heard between bands I like from, you know, Guess to Led Zeppelin to, uh, other bands. Uh, <laughs> At all. <laughs> but, but in the end, like, no, I just couldn't, I couldn't get over the hump it was too bizarre for me. Lots of cool stuff. I can definitely see how this was a precursor to sort of what I thought of as metal uh, before before I sort of got into, you know, where music as we, we think of comes from. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm going to go no on uh, Iron Maiden's Iron Maiden. I'm going yes, and here's why. I had a lot of fun listening to the record this week. I had a lot of good laughs and smiles. And I think that, and by the way, with Led Zeppelin, we didn't even get to talk about how Transylvania is basically the song remains the same. But, you know, just file that away for later. Another another just quick anecdote I liked. We talked about Steve Harris firing members of the band constantly. But to be fair, he used the same approach with himself because the anecdote I heard is that before he formed Iron Maiden, he was another band. And he was submitting songs like Transylvania and Phantom of the Opera. And the guys were like, yeah, this is a little too complicated for us. We're into this. And he's like, cool, I'm out. Band over. <laughs> go, go get another job. I will never associate with you again. So anyway, I, I, I like that. I And to me, this album, although it is not going to spark a deep dive into Iron Maiden's catalog, I'm not going to call my... Do they have a name for their fans? Have we even talked about that? I don't know. They say you've been maidened. When you go to an Iron Maiden show. That's, that's not going to be me. I shan't be wearing any of this merch on my body anytime soon. But I did have a lot of fun listening to this. And for me, it kind of filled in a gap bridging the 70s to the 80s. I was already aware of a lot of the 70s stuff and some of the 80s stuff. And I now I have, I think I have a slightly better idea of how that connects and how Prague from the 70s leads to 80s metal. So I'm happy for that. I feel like that's a part of the canon that's important. So it's a yes for me. Listen to it. Yeah, so I had a lot of problems with this album, chiefly among them the fact that there's like eight songs in the album, and I think they maybe wrote six verses and just repeated them ad nauseum throughout the entirety, and it just seemed a little tacked on to me. Um, that being said, you know, metal's not my genre. I don't know if I'm supposed to get it or not, but I can say that uh, I think the ripple effect that they had on music is undeniable. And uh, I got to give it a yes just for what it spawned. Again, I did have fun listening to it. I probably won't listen to it 
again. Um, you know, maybe one or two of the songs will end up on a playlist somewhere, but I'm not going to sit down and like front to back this album anytime in the you know foreseeable future. But I am glad that I did it, and I think that you should as well, listeners. Give it a spin. So there's a on on YouTube. There's a three hour documentary. There's a part one and a part two. I made it most of the way, an hour and fifteen, hour and twenty minutes into the first part, which which tracks from their inception through uh, the second or third album. And I watched that before I listened to the album because I wanted to be prepped. And I was excited to hear Steve Harris just talk about the lore and and the culture of of Maiden and the songs and all this stuff. And then I put on the album, and I was super disappointed. Um, he had, and just the lore of Iron Maiden and where they came from, understanding that they were playing at one point stadiums with, you know, a quarter million people in them, that this was their original debut album left me a bit disappointed. Now, having said that, I do agree with Rob and Tom that the, uh, the seeds they planted and then spawned outwards in the metal genres, I think warrant a listen to this album even though to tom's point i'm probably not listening to this again anytime soon i think if you've got you know when when you go hit uh iron maiden playlist and you get like the top five or six tunes that really does give you the overall feel of what you're going to hear on 47 albums so i think those five tunes are enough but i do think you should listen to this album to hear the origin story of a super successful, super influential metal band. Whew. Kept us in suspense there, buddy. I thought we were going to have a tie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trying to sell the sizzle, man. It's about selling the sizzle. All right. So congratulations, Iron Maiden. In addition to your 200 million albums, DVDs, VHS videos, and uh, Eddie the Head bobbleheads that you've sold, you now... Uh, deserve to be on the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So an exciting time. But now let's throw things over to Tom, who has the Albinator warmed up, and he's going to let us know what we and you guys should listen to for next week's episode. All right, everybody. Very excited to move on from Iron Maiden and listen to something else. No offense, Iron Maiden. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get that Albinator all spun up and check out what we are going to listen to next week. Drum roll, please. We are going to be listening to... Oh, something extraordinarily similar. Uh, The Velvet Underground's... (laughs) The Velvet Underground by The Velvet Underground and Nico. Uh, that's what we'll be listening to next week. I'm sure the similarities are going to come fast and furious. You know, I've never listened to the velvet underground. Like at all? Of, like at all. Like I, that's like, what exciting. Was their big, what's their big hit? Or like, don't I worry mean, about I, I, it. they probably, they didn't. Have a hit, right? <laughs> I know they were like, you know, they don't have a hit. They're one of they're these kind of underground kind of. Yeah. So again, so one of those bands I've heard, this is going to be awesome. One of those bands I've heard of my whole life and have never sat down. And listen to. I'm looking forward to this. This just to be clear, this is the banana record. Yeah, this is the Andy yeah. Warhol record. Yep. Called Velvet Underground and Nico, their first record. Uh, I'm excited about this too. This, this is exciting. I I like the Velvet Underground a lot. I think they're an under, they're a highly influential band that never really had a hit song, as I think you'll see. But you might recognize a couple of the tunes nonetheless, Adam. Who knows? 
but there's a lot of different things going on in their catalog so i'll just i'll just throw that out there and they're not the easiest to like but i do personally like them oh this is the one with the seven minute long opus the heroine on it yes (laughs) i think it's an excellent song it is actually an excellent song but it's let me it's just seven minutes about how great heroin is (laughs) but it's it's rough around the edges but definitely purposefully so well we'll look forward to that yeah all right so go out listen to 1967's the velvet underground and nico for next week we'll all do the same we'll meet you back here for all of our insights and jackass opinions Speaking of opinions, we want to hear yours. Did we get things right? Did we get things wrong? Was everything we said terrible about Iron Maiden? If so, let us know. Shoot us an email at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. That's 1001, the number, albumcomplaints at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. I have been Adam. I'm Phil. I'm Rob. And I am Tom. Boosh. 